Hey everyone, I'm Alistair Stevens from there and back again an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. Today in our 42nd discussion, we are going to finally get to the first major military engagement of the War of the Ring. Today, we get to the Battle of Helm's Deep, but not before we finish up our thoughts on light and darkness and hope and hopelessness and the healing of Theoden King. We're going to talk a little more about the last chapter because of course we ran out of time last time, but then we're going to push on into the Battle of Helm's Deep and look at this this pivotal military engagement and it is of course a military engagement in which Tolkien represents kind of lays out for us his entire thematic landscape his entire thematic understanding what is this story about well in large part we can determine the meaning of the Lord of the Rings as a story, of course, not as an allegory, but as a story inherent to itself, we can understand the meaning of the Lord of the Rings based on the events of the Battle of Helm's Deep. It's going to be a really fascinating discussion. It is great to have everyone here. We have Ty and Sarah both joining us for the first time. Ty admits that he has listened to the preceding 41 episodes of There and Back Again in a span of two weeks, which... Boy, that takes some doing. That is 70 hours, something like 70 hours. That means that if you've done that in two weeks, you've basically had a full-time job listening to There and Back Again. Ty, I salute you. I applaud you. I'm a little intimidated by you. I'm not going to lie. Sarah also joining us for the first time. It is great to have you all here. Sarah is asking a pressing question here in the Crowdcast chat for the live audience. Why is everyone's name capitalized? Because there is a conceit. I think this conceit was was first uh, begun by the wonderful Becca Eller. Becca, was this your doing? Is this your responsibility? possibly Angela's doing, Angela's responsibility here, that in the Crowdcast chat there is no way of tagging the names of other people in the chat, the way that there is, for example, in the YouTube live chat. So it is a, a, um, a convention now in the Crowdcast live chat that we capitalize everyone's names when we type, which does make it seem as though everyone is shouting enthusiastically when someone comes in, like Norm showing up at Cheers. You know, we kind of have that response. Someone comes in, says hello, and then hi, so-and-so in full caps. It's, it's just really good. It's just a really good, positive, happy thing here. So I'm very glad that that's, a, uh, that that's a thing that we all get to share. All right, let's get into... Oh, it's also Rachel's first time live. Good Lord. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you're uh, looking forward to our discussion of Helm's Deep. Let's begin, though, as I said, with the final healing of Theoden King. We talked a lot about Theoden last time and the... Casting out of the, the last spell, right? Casting out of the darkness, casting out of the hopelessness within the golden hall here. And, and Theoden's restoration to light, you know, we discussed last time as we were concluding the last session, Gandalf leading Theoden outside to look forth upon his people, to look forth upon his kingdom, and him saying, it is not so dark. It is not so dark. Not as dark as he had been led to believe. And hey, bear that in mind as we move forward, because we're going to be dealing a lot with the imagery of light and darkness immediately kind of conflated with, combined with the notions of hope and hopelessness. What is it that has afflicted Theoden? It's pretty much just hopelessness. It's the bad news bought to, uh, brought to him by Grima Wormtongue, brought to him too by, of course, uh, Gandalf Stormcrow. You know, he has been afflicted by hopelessness, believing that all is lost and that the darkness is now irrefutable, that the darkness cannot be denied a moment longer. That, of course, is not true because the dawn always comes. Let's take a look at our first slide here. Returning to chapter six, uh, the hall, uh, the king of the golden hall, excuse me. Here is our first slide for this week. For a moment of silence, Theoden stood looking down at Eomer as he knelt still before him, neither moved. Will you not take the sword? said Gandalf. 
Slowly, Theoden stretched forth his hand. As his fingers took the hilt, it seemed to the watchers that firmness and strength returned to his thin arm. Suddenly, he lifted the blade and swung it, shimmering and whistling in the air. Then he gave a great cry. His voice rang clear as he chanted in the tongue of Rohan a call to arms. Arise now, arise, riders of Theoden. Dire deeds awake, dark it is eastward. Let horse be bridled, horn be sounded. Forth, Aeolingus! The guards, thinking that they were summoned, sprang up the stair. They looked at their lord in amazement, and then as one man they drew their swords and laid them at his feet. Command us, they said. Where's do Theodenhals? cried Eomer. It is a joy to see you return into your own. Never again shall it be said, Gandalf, that you come only with grief. Take back your sword, Eomer, sister son, said the king. Go, Ahama, and seek my own sword. Grima has it in his keeping. Bring him to me also. Now, Gandalf, you said you had counsel to give, if I would hear it. What is your counsel? You have yourself already taken it, answered Gandalf. To put your trust in Aomer rather than a man of crooked mind, to cast aside regret and fear, to do the deed at hand. Every man that can ride should be sent west at once, as Aomer counseled you. We must first destroy the threat of Saruman while, all, while we have time. If we fail, we fall. If we succeed, then we will face the next task. Meanwhile, your people that are left, the women and the children and the old, should fly to the refuges you have in the mountains. Were they not prepared against just such an evil day as this? Let them take provision, but delay not, nor burden themselves with treasure, great or small. It is their lives that are at stake. Gandalf the Counselor here, a notion that we're going to return to right at the end of this chapter. So what is happening here? Well, Theoden is completing his healing. And he's completing his healing in a way that is completely thematically consistent with Tolkien's understanding of virtue, Tolkien's understanding of heroism, Tolkien's understanding of the good in the world. Yes, hopelessness has been vanquished. We'll remember that Gandalf brought darkness into the Hall of the Golden King and, and, and into the, the King of the Golden Hall's hall, I suppose. The Hall of the Golden King is perhaps, you know, a little excessive for Theoden, but still, there we are. Uh, he, he darkened the hall and illuminated only himself utterly in keeping with the imagery that we've had of late of Gandalf connected with the sun, connected with illumination, connected with brilliance. So he casts the hole into darkness. He himself is illuminated. And then step by step, degree by degree, as he restores faith and hopefulness to Theoden King, the light emerges, the darkness is vanquished. Then we step out from the hall and the light is complete. The light is fully realized. And Theoden realizes, you know, there's, there's still hope in the world, but hope as we know from our pages, uh, from our discussion of the pages of The Hobbit, hope and, and opportunity are never enough. What is it that sets Bilbo aside from the dwarves? What is it that makes Bilbo a hero in the pages of The Hobbit? It isn't just opportunity. It isn't just the luck of the Baggins. It isn't just the luck of hobbits. It is the willingness to take action when that luck presents itself. When the door is open, when, when opportunity shows up out of nowhere. What seals victory, what, what commands our respect, what separates Bilbo from the other characters in The Hobbit is his readiness and his willingness to take action. So now we've got the opportunity. Now we've got the hope again. And now it is time for Theoden to take action, which he symbolizes, of course, by taking up the sword. Not his sword, yet his sword has not been restored to him. His sword, rather brilliantly, was taken from him by Grima Wormtongue and has been stashed away somewhere, stashed away so that it can never be used. But now it is going to be restored. But it doesn't matter. Actually, the specific sword is less important than the taking up once more of arms. Slowly, Theoden stretched forth his hand as his fingers took the hilt. It seemed to the watcher 
features that firmness and strength returned to his thin arm. Suddenly he lifted the blade and swung it shimmering and whistling in the air. Then he gave a great cry. Arise now, arise, riders of Theoden. Dire deeds awake, dark it is eastward. Let horse be bridled, horn be sounded. Forth Erlingas. Erlingas here, the people of Eorl, the people of Rohan, the Rohirrim. But he's rendering it in these terms because their, their line of lineage back to Eorl the Young reminds them of their innate heroism. People of Eorl, what did you do? Why are you here? Why did the Rohirrim even exist? Because once darkness threatened, 500 years ago, darkness threatened Gondor. And they sent forth the call for aid, and we answered. Our forebears answered. We came down out of the north. We allied ourselves with the men of Gondor. We drove back the darkness. That is who we are. That is why Rohan even exists. That is why there is a kingdom here. That is why the horse lords rule this part of, of what was previously abandoned northern Gondor. That's why this kingdom is here, is because we fight back the darkness. He doesn't deny the darkness. He doesn't say, actually, everything is fine. Come forth now and let us be joyous, for the darkness has been vanquished. The darkness has been driven forth by Gandalf. No, he says, dire deeds awake. Dark it is eastward. There is a darkness in the world, but we are going to fight. Let horse be bridled, horn be sounded, forth Eorlingas. And what happens to his man? His man, hearing the cry, thinking that they were summoned, spring up the stair. They look at their lord in amazement, and then as one man, they drew their swords and laid them at his feet. Command us, they said. This is what they want. This is what has been missing from Rohan. This is the role of the king. He's not just an authority. He's not just a figurehead. He is a focal point for the action and agency of this entire nation. Now restored to his vigor and ready to take action, Theoden will lead. He will really lead. And that is going to be very important. We're going to circle back around to that command us notion when we get to Helm's Deep in just a few slides time. Um, this is also the moment where he accepts Gandalf as a counselor, now restored to his power. He is not leaning on his stick, and he's not literally leaning on his stick or metaphorically leaning on Wormtongue anymore. Now he is leaning on Gandalf, but he's doing so as a king does. He is taking counsel. Now, Gandalf, you said you had counsel to give if I would hear it. What is your counsel? Tell me, Gandalf, what would you suggest? Not tell me what to do. Not He doesn't lay down his sword at Gandalf's feet and say, command me, O Gandalf. He doesn't do that. No. What is your counsel? I am the king. What is your counsel for me? And Gandalf replies, you have already taken it. To put your trust in Eomer rather than in a man of crooked mind. To cast aside regret and fear. Regret and fear combined here with this notion of hopelessness. To, to, to reject and repudiate the darkness with hopefulness and courage, right? That's what we're talking about here. To cast aside regret and fear. To do the deed at hand. To take action. What has Theoden King been doing here? Well, he has been hiding away. We talked about this last time as Gandalf and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli arrive at Edoras in the first place. We talked about the, the conversation that they have at the gate, right? Where the gate guard says, you can't come in unless you are of our people, unless you speak Rohiric, which no one does but us, or you specifically come from Minas Tirith in Gondor. Those are the only circumstances in, in, under which you are allowed entry to Edoras in the first place. Then, having crossed that threshold, having, you know, ascended the hill to the, the golden hall here, they are confronted again by, by Hama, right? By the door warden, who says, also, you have to give up your weapons. Why do you have to give up your weapons if the only people who are allowed in Edoras in the first place are loyal allies, allies who have proved themselves? Because Theoden is fearful. Theoden is being kept in this 
this dark realm of, of fearfulness and self-doubt by Wormtongue. He is being driven into inaction by the shadow, by the darkness that is all around him. That has now been completely rejected. So to do the deed at hand, this is what Gandalf is counseling. Every man that can ride should be sent west at once as Aomer counseled you. We must first destroy the threat of Saruman while we have time. If we fail, we fall. If we succeed, then we will face the next task. This is not the last hour. This is not the, the climactic battle of the War of the Ring. This is not us, us versus the Shadow. I mean, if we lose, we're done. That's it. We are fighting now for survival, not for ultimate victory. Ultimate victory may come, but it's a few things down the list. We've got a few things to which we, uh, to which we must turn our attention first before we, can even be, before we can even think about final victory against the Shadow, which may still yet be impossible. But I'll tell you this. If we don't destroy Saruman's forces now, if we don't turn against Isengard now, we are sunk. That's it. We're caught in the middle between the force of Barad-dûr and the force of Orthanc, you know, between the two towers, as it were, and we will be crushed. That is absolutely guaranteed. So put your trust in Eomer, a good man of stout heart and not the crooked mind of, of Grima Wormtongue. Um... Let me see as I come back here. Jackie says, I, always, I also love Gandalf's confidence in Eomer. It's like he's developing a relationship with the future king right here and now, right? Gandalf knows a good guy when he sees one. Gandalf is, is immediately warm to Eomer. He, see, he recognizes the goodness of Eomer and his good counsel, even crediting Eomer in this moment, right? Every man that can write should be sent west as once as Eomer counseled you. Yes, I am Gandalf the Wise. Yes, I am of the Astari. I can give you better counsel than any man alive. And my counsel is that Aomer was, was dead on the money, actually. Aomer just, just nailed it. That's exactly what we have to do. So Gandalf giving that credit there is a major, a major um, a contribution to Theoden's reappraisal of Aomer. Yes. Um, let me see here as I scroll back. Um, Sarah says, sidebar, I was in a show once. I'm an opera singer. Sarah, that's fantastic. It was all in Italian. And at the end, everyone got married. And we all said all the spouses, which in Italian is tutti sposi. So that's what all the kings returning reminds me of. Tutti sposi. I like that a lot. Yes, that, that's very good. Yes, because of course, king after king after king. So many kings just, just hanging around. Yeah, it's pretty great. Good, good. All right, so let's push on to our second slide here. At that moment, Hama came again from the hall. Behind him, cringing between two other men, came Grima, the worm tongue. His face was very white. His eyes blinked in the sunlight. Hama knelt and presented to Theoden a long sword and a scabbard clasped with gold and set with green gems. Here, Lord, is Herugrim, your ancient blade, he said. It was found in his chest. Loth was he to render up the keys. Many other things are there which men have missed. You lie, said Wormtongue, and this sword your master himself gave into my keeping. And he now requires it of you again, said Theoden. Does that displease you? Assuredly not, Lord, said Wormtongue. I care for you and yours as best I may, but do not weary yourself or tax too heavily your strength. Let others deal with these irksome guests. Your meat is about to be set on the board. Will you not go to it? I will, said Theoden. And let food for my guests be set on the board beside me. The host rides today. Send the heralds forth. Let them summon all who dwell nigh. Every man and strong lad able to bear arms. All who have horses, let them be ready in the saddle at the gate ere the second hour from noon. Dear Lord, cried Wormtongue, it is as I feared this wizard has bewitched you. Are none to be left to defend the golden hall of your fathers and all your treasure? None to guard the lord of the mark? If this is bewitchment, said Theoden, it seems to me more wholesome than your whisperings. Your leechcraft ere long would have had me walking on all fours like a beast. No, not one shall be left, not even Grima. Grima shall ride too. Go, you have yet time to clean the rust from your sword. 
Mercy, Lord, whined Wormtongue, groveling on the ground. Have pity on one worn out in your service. Send me not from your side. I at least will stand by you when all others have gone. Do not send your faithful Grima away. You have my pity, said Theoden, and I do not send you from my side. I go myself to war with my men. I bid you come with me and prove your faith. The coming to justice of one Grima Wormtongue, uh, kind of, will actually get real justice for Grima in just a little while. But right now he is at least being confronted by his king, the king who has been bowed down under his fell influence, under his, his whisperings and his loath spell, right? Under these dark imaginings and dark twistings of the truth, which Grima has used to ensnare and to frighten and to daunt Theoden, king of Rohan. This return of the sword is obviously very significant. Swords are very significant. Swords, as proof, we actually talked about this last time, right? When we were talking about the reforging of Andoril, the reforging of Narsil into Andoril in The Fellowship of the Ring, in the book, and in The Return of the King in the movie. And the distinction there, why that change was necessary for the movie version of Aragorn's arc to play out properly. It's because swords, the swords of kings in particular, are, are crucially important. They are among the most powerful totems of a king's authority. You know, Anduril is a symbol of Aragorn's right to the throne. It's not just a symbol that he is Elendil's heir to kind of distinguish those two things, right? Even if Gondor was not ruled by a steward, even if, if Aragorn was not heir of Gondor, then it would still be a symbol of his lineage. It would still be a symbol of his name and of his, his the order of man to which he belongs, I suppose. But in this particular instance, it is also a connection with that throne. This is Aragorn's birthright that he carries in the, the, uh, the elven sheath at his side. And the same is true, of course, for Theoden. His sword was taken from him, not shattered, not broken, but put away in a locked chest by Grima Wormtongue, where, as Hama tells us, uh, many other things are there which men have missed. So Wormtongue has just been going through Edoras here, just taking anything that, that strikes his fancy, just squirreling away the valuables here. Not terribly heroic, not terribly fantastic. Uh, Herugrim, the name of Theoden's, uh, of Theoden's sword, means fierce or cruel or, or savage in Old English. So it is a, a good warrior sword name there. And that kind of brings us up to the present here in the story, right? Everything has been restored. We are now ready to take action. We ride out two hours after noon. Everyone is going. And and you'll see how Wormtongue here clarifies that. Will you leave no one behind? Um, it is as I feared the wizard has bewitched you. Are none to be left to defend the golden hall of your fathers and all your treasure? None to guard the lord of the mark? None to guard the lord of the mark? Theoden is the lord of the mark. So Wormtongue is assuming even now that Theoden is going to remain behind, which is why he begs, no, don't send me off. Let me stay with you. I am loyal to you. Let me stay with you because it is safe here, not understanding yet. Theoden's intent, that Theoden too is going to ride out. I go myself to war with my men. I bid you come with me and prove your faith. Yes. Um, let me see as I catch up with the chat. <laughs> Wormtongue is acting like a niffler, says Nikki. Very good. Um, yes, yes, yes. The, the story is a sword. So, uh, this story is a sword subject. Uh, great points abound, double-edged, and no, I agree to the... Yeah, yeah. Okay, Gildarts is giving us a lot of puns here, which I like. Yes. Oh, and we're naming swords. Uh, Variag of Khand gives us uh, Guthwine, Narsil, Herugrim, Sting. Yeah, a lot of sword names. Three sword names in today's reading. In fact, if we include Underwill, of course, which we've had before, but yes. Good. Good. All right. So that is our confrontation here with Wormtongue, but we're still going to see the proof of his fell influence, his malign influence as we move forward. 
At the king's board sat Aomer and the four guests, and there also waiting upon the kings was the lady Eowyn. They ate and drank swiftly. The others were silent while Theoden questioned Gandalf concerning Saruman. How far back his treachery goes, who can guess, said Gandalf. He was not always evil. Once I do not doubt that he was a friend of Rohan, and even when his heart grew colder, he found you useful still. But for long now he has plotted your ruin, wearing the mask of friendship until he was ready. In those years, Wormtongue's task was easy, and all that you did was swiftly known in Isengard, for your land was open and strangers came and went. And ever Wormtongue's whispering was in your ears, poisoning your thought, chilling your heart, weakening your limbs, while others watched and could do nothing, for your will was in his keeping. But when I escaped and warned you, then the mask was torn for those who would see. After that, Wormtongue played dangerously, always seeking to delay you, to prevent your full strength being gathered. He was crafty, dulling men's weariness, or working on their weariness, excuse me, or working on their fears as served the occasion. Do you not remember how eagerly he urged that no man should be spared on a wild goose chase northward when the immediate peril was westward? He persuaded you to forbid Aomer to pursue the raiding orcs. If Aomer had not defied Wormtongue's voice speaking with your mouth, those orcs would have reached Isengard by now, bearing a great prize. Not indeed that prize which Saruman desires above all else, but at the least two members of my company, sharers of a secret hope of which even to you, Lord, I cannot yet speak openly. Dare you think of what they might now be suffering, of what Saruman might now have learned to our destruction? I owe much to Aomer, said Theoden. Faithful heart may have froward tongue. Say also, said Gandalf, that to crooked eyes truth may wear a wry face. Indeed, my eyes were almost blind, said Theoden. Most of all I owe to you, my guest. Once again you have come in time. I would give you a gift ere we go at your own choosing. You have only to name aught that is mine. I reserve now only my sword. Whether I came in time or not is yet to be seen, said Gandalf. But as for your gift, lord, I will choose one that will fit my need, swift and sure. Give me Shadowfax. He was only lent before, if loan we may call it, but now I shall ride him into great hazard, setting silver against black. I would not risk anything that is not my own, and already there is a bond of love between us. So Theoden, recognizing Gandalf's contribution, recognizing Gandalf's counsel, recognizing Gandalf's wisdom, offering him a gift, reserving only his sword, which may remind us of Aragorn fretting over handing over Anduril when he reached the Golden Hall in the first place. Remember that conversation from last week's reading, as, as Hama says, yeah, even if you were king in Gondor, even if you occupied the throne that right now Denethor occupies, this would still be King Theoden's hall. And Aragorn is unsure of this. He's loath to give up his weapon anyway, and certainly specifically loath to give up Anduril, and of course doesn't give up Anduril. Rather, he chooses himself to set Anduril against the wall and bides Zahama to make sure that no man touches it. That seems like a decent compromise. That seems like a reasonable, uh, reasonable step for a king to take. And here we see Theoden taking a similar step here. You can have anything that I, I have, name it, except my sword. That, obviously, I can't give up to you. I wouldn't give up to you anyway. I certainly can't give up to you in time of need here. So Gandalf says... Shadowfax, because my need is swift and sure. Give me Shadowfax. He was only lent before, if loan we may call it. Yeah, okay, sure. L let's call it a loan. Why not? Let's not call it, you know, horse theft. That's fine. Grand theft, equine. I don't know. But le let's not call it that. Fine. It was a loan, and now it is a gift. Now I shall write him into great hazard, setting silver against black. I would not risk anything that is not my own. I wouldn't risk Shadowfax in this conflict if Shadowfax did not, in some sense, belong to me. 
And already there is a bond of love between us, a connection here between Gandalf and his horse. It's really very beautiful. It's very, very good. So we see the the workings of uh, Wormtongue's mind here, how Wormtongue counsels, for, uh, even when his heart grew colder, speaking of Saruman, even when his heart grew colder, he found you useful still, but for long now he has plotted your ruin, wearing the mask of friendship until he was ready. In those years, Wormtongue's task was easy, and all that you did was swiftly known in Isengard for your land was open and strangers came and went. So in the first instance, Wormtongue just had a simple job. His job was to get close to the king and then pass information back to Saruman. Piece of cake. And ever Wormtongue's Wormtongue's whispering was in your ears, poisoning your thought, chilling your heart, weakening your limbs, while others watched and could do nothing for your will was in his keeping, okay? So that was phase one. Wormtongue is weakening the king and passing information back to Orthanc, back to to Isengard. But when I escaped and warned you, then the mask was torn for those who would see. This is Gandalf coming to Rohan, of course, after being imprisoned in Orthanc and saying to Theoden, Saruman is a bad guy. Saruman is is, is working with Sauron. He is is breeding orcs there in Isengard. He is striving for the ring. We are, I guess, not actually he is striving for the ring because there are some things which we can't even talk about now, but more on that later, I suppose. Um, but Saruman is no friend to Rohan. And at that point, Wormtongue seals up the kingdom. He seals up Edoras here. He he turns Theoden's power inward instead of it being projected outward. And what power there is projected outward, he sends off on wild goose chases. You know, he sends the men north, not west where they should be, but he sends them north instead. But with the injunction that actually, if you see the orcs, you definitely shouldn't chase them. It is Eomer's valor and virtue that has saved the day here as uh, as Gandalf lays out. Not indeed the prize which Saruman desires above all else, brackets for our benefit, the ring, but at least two members of my company, sharers of a secret hope of which even to you, Lord, I cannot yet speak openly. So he confides in Theoden that the company, the fellowship, is doing something, that they are doing something important. These aren't just friends. These are sharers of a secret hope. There is light still in the world. It's not a light that he can use to heal Theoden, because the darkness that afflicted Theoden can never be cancelled by a a concealed light, if that makes sense. He needs the light of the world around him and the light of, of power and agency flowing through his veins once more. Dare you think what, of what they might now be suffering or what Saruman might now have learned to our destruction? What would have happened if Eomer hadn't, hadn't betrayed your command, your command, in, or Wormtongue's command in your mouth? I mean, what would have happened if Eomer hadn't been virtuous and valiant, hadn't taken the right and necessary action? What if Eomer had fallen upon Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and they had fought instead of talked? Things would have gone really badly. You have been saved here by a good man in your employ, a good man of your people, rather than, uh, rather than you know your own innate virtue. Um, Nikki's asking, do you prefer the enchantment of Theoden uh, from the book or the movie? I sort of like how Theoden seemed to be under a spell in the movie. Um, for the movie, I like the <laughs> for the movie, I like the movie. Uh, for the book, I like the book. Basically, it would have been much harder to communicate the less specific kind of oppression of Theoden, I think, in the movie. Anchoring that darkness in Grima Wormtongue, anchoring it in a more explicit sorcery, a kind of sorcery which is consistent with the way that magic is depicted in Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. I think that's that's a good choice. That's a strong choice. It is still, however, a choice. It is one of those adaptive choices that Jackson makes, which undoubtedly, undeniably changes the shape of the story. We are not telling the same story and we are not inviting the the viewers, the, the readers, the audience here to the same conclusion. The conclusion 
here in the book is that is that hope is hope, that, that light and hope and opportunity are all one and the same thing and are always with us, that fear and regret specifically are, are enemies to be opposed. Now, you can't take that message as cleanly from the movie because there's actual sorcery in play here, right? It's not just hopelessness. It's not just the manipulation of one's environment. It's not just Wormtongue whispering, you know, perverted truths into Theoden's ear. It is actual sorcery. That gives you a stronger response, the healing of Theoden feels more magical, is explicitly more magical, and is thus easier, I think, for the movie-going audience to accept, oh, what happened? Oh, there was a spell cast on him, and Gandalf undid it, and everything's fine now. That's easier, I think, than the fairly swift restoration of a kind of natural optimism and a natural agency to Theoden that we get in the book, but they are they are necessarily different. We're going to have a lot of opportunity to talk about Peter Jackson's adapt, uh, adapt, excuse me, Peter Jackson's adaptive choices when we talk about the two towers. More so, I would argue, than either Fellowship of the Ring or Return of the King. I think that the second movie in the trilogy is the one where his adaptive choices are the most specific, the most intentional, and in some ways, the most profound, right? Not necessarily profound as you're watching the movie, but certainly profound as you're thinking about the movie, as you're, as you're talking about the movie, as you're considering the movie as opposed to the book. I think that the changes there are surprisingly subtle sometimes, but are, are deeper perhaps than many of the adaptive changes that we get in Fellowship and Return of the King. All right, let's keep moving on. Oh, I did want to call out there um, the word froward. Let me actually go back to that slide so that I can uh, quote this. I owe much to Amor, said Thad, and faithful heart may have froward tongue. Say also, said Gandalf, that to crooked eyes truth may wear a wry face. They're kind of sparring gently with one another here. Froward is oftentimes uh, mistypeset. It is it is uh, it is changed by overzealous editors in final editions, but it doesn't mean forward. It means froward. Froward meaning. Uh, perverse or or contrary or contradictory, right? It is simply uh, uh, a word meaning um, in, in in conflict with. So faithful heart may have froward tongue. Faithful heart may have contradictory voice. That is to say that people who who love us and who support us and who are actually loyal to us may disagree with us. That is just a thing that can happen. They may speak with contrary tongue. Say also, said Gandalf, that to crooked eyes, truth may wear a wry face. Wry here meaning, um, again, distorted or crooked. So to crooked eyes, truth may wear a crooked face. So that's our little uh, little back and forth there between Theoden King and Gandalf. Okay, on now to the next slide. The king now rose, and at once Eowyn came forth bearing wine. Firthu Theoden Hall, she said. Receive now this cup and drink in happy hour. Health be with thee at thy going and coming. Theoden drank from the cup, and she then proffered it to the guests. As she stood before Aragorn, she paused suddenly and looked upon him, and her eyes were shining. And he looked down upon her fair face and smiled. But as he took the cup, his hand met hers, and he knew that she trembled at the touch. Hail, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, she said. Hail, Lady of Rohan, he answered. But his face was now troubled, and he did not smile. When they had all drunk, the king went down to the hall, down the hall to the doors. There the guards awaited him, and heralds stood, and all the lords and chiefs were gathered together that remained in Edoras, or dwelt nearby. Behold, I go forth, and it seems like to be my last riding, said Theoden. I have no child. Theodred, my son, is slain. I name Aomer, my sister's son, to be my heir. If neither of us return, then choose a new lord as you will. But to some... Excuse me, but to someone I must now entrust my people that I leave behind to rule them in my place. Which of you will stay? No man spoke. 
Is there none whom you would name? In whom do my people trust? In the house of Aorl, answered Hama. But Aomer I cannot spare, nor would he stay, said the king, and he is the last of that house. I said not, Aomer, answered Hama. He is not the last. There is Eowyn, daughter of Eomund, his sister. She is fearless and high-hearted. All love her. Let her be as lord to the Eorlingas when we, when you, uh, excuse me, while we are gone. It shall be so, said Theoden. Let the heralds announce to the folk that the lady Eowyn will lead them. So every able-bodied man is leaving. But Theoden has to leave someone in charge. And that someone, his sister-daughter, Eowyn. So let's take a look at that opening uh, sentence there. The king now rose, and at once Eowyn came forward bearing wine. Ferthu Theoden Hal. Ferthu Theoden Hal, meaning uh, may you go forth, Theoden, in health. Literally, go forth, Theoden, hail. So Ferthu, go forth, Hal, meaning hail, meaning healthy and and uh, and well, right? So this is the, the ritualistic... Uh, the ritualistic blessing that she is offering here. Ferthu Theodon Hal, she said, Receive now this cup and drink in happy hour. Health be with thee at thy going and coming. Why are we shifting register here? Because I think this is a this is a formalistic exchange, right? This is a, a traditional exchange. Health be with thee at thy going and coming. As you leave and then as you return, go in good health and return in good health, is what she is saying. Theoden drank from the cup and she proffers it to the guests. We get this little exchange here with Aragorn. Where he looks down and she is fair. Remember, we had that beat in the last passage where they look upon each other for the first time and are struck by, oh, yeah, actually, you're kingly, you're queenly. We really could get along. Things might be just fine here. But it turns out that Eowyn has, has stumbled into love a little faster than Aragorn has, at least, as he looked down upon her fair face and smiled. But as he took the cup, his hand met hers, and he knew that she trembled at the touch. She speaks to him, he speaks to her, but now his face was troubled and he did not smile. He understands that there is something passing between them that he does not want a part of, because, of course, his heart has already been won by the Lady Arwen. So they go down, all of the kings and lo- all of the kings and lords, excuse me, all of the, the men, the guards, the lords are assembled. Every able-bodied man in Edoras, or any able-bodied man who lives nearby, is now ready to, rise out, uh, to ride out to take the fight to Saruman at Isengard. Behold, I go forth, and it seems like to be my last riding, said Theoden. I have no child. Theodred, my son, is slain. I name Eomer, my sister's son, to be my heir. If neither of us return, then choose a new lord as you will. This is absolutely a part of uh, Rohiric culture. This has happened before. We're going to talk a little about Helm, you guys. Uh, one of the, gosh, I guess Helm was fifth, sixth, I forget. But he was, you know, one of the first line of kings. He was actually directly descended from Aeorl the Young. Not indirectly descended in the way that, that you know, all of the lords of, uh, of the Rohirrim are. But he was directly descended from Aeorl the Young. He died. He actually died at Helm's Deep. That's a part of the story that we don't really talk about in this chapter, but that's completely fine. We'll talk about that later as we get to Helm's Deep. But Helm died, and when he died, the lineage of Rohiric kings passed to a new spur of the family, as it were. The lords of the Rohirrim elected a new king, which is not unusual for Anglo-Saxon cultures there. So then we get our turn. Then we get our reveal here. Is there none whom you would name? In whom do my people trust, Theoden demands? In whom do my people trust, and Hama says, in the house of Aeorl, of course, in, in the line of kings, of course, that's who we trust. But Eomar, I cannot spare, no would he stay, he is the last of that house. He is literally the last guy left. 
I said not Amr, answered Hama, and he is not the last. There is Eowyn, daughter of Am and his sister. She is fearless and high-hearted. These are the qualities which we look to, or which we look at Eowyn for. This is why Eowyn can lead. She is fearless, one, high-hearted, two, all love her. But all love her is offset by that period. It seems to be a consequence of the first two virtues rather than a third separate thing, right? It's not that that she is fearless and high-hearted and really likable. Just like really likable, everyone adores her. That's why we should follow her. No, she is fearless and high-hearted, period. All love her. We love her for her heroism, her, her high-heartedness, her actual, you know, virtue. She is elevated in the way that kings and queens are, in the way that that the inheritor of a monarchic line should be. That is absolutely true of Eowyn. We talked about this when she is introduced in last week's reading, earlier in this chapter. She is fearless and high-hearted, all love her. Let her be as lord to the Aer Lingus while we are gone. It shall be so, said Theoden. No beat, no hesitation, no consultation. He doesn't turn to Gandalf and say, what do you think? Is this going to be okay? Eowyn, think it's all right? Thumbs up, thumbs down, you know? No. It shall be so, said Theowen. Let the heralds announce to the folk that the lady Eowyn will lead them. And so Eowyn takes charge of Edoras, is left behind in the coming conflict, absolutely. The men are riding out to war, but she will take care of the children and the women folk and the elderly and wounded. Yes. Um, let me see here. Uh, Nikki says, you'd think Theoden would be more aware of that than Hama. Well, see, I think there are some interesting... Um, I, I, yes, absolutely, you're right, Nikki. Under normal circumstances, I think that would be true, particularly, as we said, that um, in Anglo-Saxon culture, the the division between men and women is not as stark as it was in other, you know, traditional European cultures. You know, uh, there was less of a kind of functional distinction because circumstances were hard and you needed skilled people where you could get them. So women were allowed to wield weapons and to sometimes, when when need demanded it, to actually fight against men. That was a thing that was permitted in Anglo-Saxon culture. And certainly women were allowed to inherit, usually not in largest part, but they could certainly inherit holdings. This is a little different. And I wonder what we are to make of Eowyn as she is presented to us in this chapter up to this point, right? When we first meet Eowyn, it's as we first enter the Golden Hall, right? As we come into the Golden Hall and we're talking about Theoden and he's on his throne, on his dais, and he's crumpled and he's, you know, like looking like a dwarf because he's still, you know, curled up and, and holding onto his cane and he's depleted in this way. And the only reference we get to Eowyn is that there is a woman in white behind him. That is it. She isn't even identified by name. We get no detail of her at all until she well, emerges into the narrative, right? When she really shows up and we get her name and we get this first interaction with Aragorn, that's the first moment at which Eowyn is kind of redefined as a person. And I wonder to what degree, given Wormtongue's dismissal of or, or his, um, his opposition to Eomer, I wonder what lies Grima Wormtongue has been spreading about Eowyn, or, or in what way he has been diminishing her role still further. I'm perfectly comfortable assuming that, that Theoden honestly hasn't thought uh, <laughs> Theoden hasn't thought honestly of Eowyn in quite some time. I think that's probably the, the setup here. But yes, yes, that's the uh, that is yes. <laughs> um, let me see here. 
Good. Yes, of course. It, it, it is fair to say that, uh, yeah, as Heroes and Bard says, she's freed from worm tongue too. Very true. Very true. Um, yes, Lynn is is opposing me here and doing so absolutely rightly. That's absolutely the wrong phrasing for a culture that was not so gender or oriented. They didn't need to be allowed. She's objecting to, to me saying that, that, that women were allowed to be. Um, I mean, yes, that is, that is not the way that it should be, right? But it was within Anglo-Saxon culture, it was permitted more than an innate equality was recognized, right? It was still a, uh, a patriarchal culture. It was still a, a, a dominated culture in that sense. Um, so when I say that they were allowed, when I say that they were permitted, it was usually an exception. It was usually not in a way that was formalized and understood but there were exceptions made. But when you make exceptions, right, when you are saying, no, in this instance, actually, mm, this woman can fight. Actually, in this instance, this woman can inherit. Look, look at me. Aren't I progressive and awesome? You are still reserving that power for yourself because you're absolutely right. If there is true equality, if we're actually, you know, recognizing women as, oh, what's the word, people too, then you don't get, you, you don't allow, right? You don't, that, that, that giving of empowerment is not transactive in that sense. You are not reserving any right. The patriarchy is not reserving any right for itself, any right of dispensation for itself, because equality is apparent and transparent. So there is a distinction there, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I wouldn't want to... I do think that allowed was maybe the right word. Again, we're, we're treating Anglo-Saxon culture for the purposes of this conversation as though it were one single monolithic thing, which it absolutely wasn't. So there were different approaches to this, but... Uh, I do think that allowed is the right word, but yes, I don't want to, to in any way suggest that allowing women to be equal to men is in any way a, you know, th that's where we should be, you know? Isn't it great that these men are letting the ladies also take up weapons? No, that's obviously gross, right? It, yes, completely true. But uh, within the frame of Anglo-Saxon culture, I think it is a little more, there is still that preservation, that reservation of power. Yes, you can fight. Yes, you can inherit. Yes, you can lead. <laughs> Let's be honest. You don't get to make that decision. I get to make that decision. That's kind of where the setup is there. Again, we could spend a lot, a, a, a lot of time talking about uh, talking about the movement of Anglo-Saxon culture here. And certainly, uh, Professor Tolkien did. Yes, good. All right. Let's keep moving onward here. Um, Onward, in fact, to our departure. This is, believe it or not, the end of chapter six. And I'm only 45 minutes into today's session. I think we're going to clear all of our slides today, you guys. This is exciting. Where is Shadowfax? said Gandalf. Running wild over the grass, they answered. He will let no man handle him. There he goes, away down by the ford like a shadow among the willows. Gandalf whistled and called aloud the horse's name. And far away he tossed his head and neighed, and turning sped toward the host like an arrow. For the breath of the west wind to take a body visible, even so it would appear, said Eomer, as a great horse ran up, until he stood before the wizard. The gift seems already to be given, said Theoden, but hearken all. Here now I name my guest, Gandalf Greyhame, wisest of counsellors, most welcome of wanderers, a lord of the mark, a chieftain of the Eorlinga, Swalarkin shall last, and I give to him Shadowfax, prince of horses. I thank you, Theoden King, said Gandalf. Then suddenly he threw back his grey cloak and cast aside his hat and leapt to horseback. He wore no helm nor mail. His snowy hair flew free in the wind. His white robes shone dazzling in the sun. Behold the white rider, cried Aragorn, and all took up the words. Our king and the white rider, they shouted. Forth, Eorlingus! The trumpets sounded. The horses reared and neighed, spear clashed on shield. Then the king raised his hand, and with a rush like the sudden onset of a great wind, the last host of Rohan rode thundering into the west. 
Far over the plain, Eowyn saw the glitter of their spears as she stood still, alone before the doors of the silent house. That is an unusual narrative beat for the professor right there at the end, right? He doesn't normally play these very modern-feeling games of perspective, right? That is enormously cinematic. And, and when I say cinematic, I mean specifically cinematic in a very modern sense, right? In, in a, I suppose, modern age of cinema, 1975 to the present. Like, that's very much the, the feeling that I get from that transition. It, that, that pull back to Eowyn here, we're seeing the, the rise and the ride of the men of Rohan, but then we have this very subtle cutaway. We get to see this event from a different, distant perspective that feels very cinematic in that modern sense and doesn't honestly feel that much like anything else that we get in the professor's work. I mean, there are a few moments where we get where we we get this kind of irony, right? Where we 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 introduce a a distance, a distance containing an inherent tension into the narrative perspective, so that we, the reader, are are given additional insight that the man at this moment lack. I, I like that very much when, when Tolkien does it, but he doesn't do it often. This is one of the most striking examples, which also reminds me, by the way, I was talking last time about uh, the difference between um, story and, and recorded history, you know, whether or not we, as the, you know, as the elves do, you know, we sing the songs of the past, or as the dwarves do, we record the past, or as, you know, the Rohirrim do, we let the past go. And I said very casually that I couldn't think of a, sim a single instance of recorded, factual, objective history being presented to us in a positive light. That is to say that I couldn't think of an instance of kind of documentary, soulless history being presented in a positive light. But this week, I was struck by an instance of that. There is one circumstance in which the accumulation of names and dates is actually presented to us, without the, the context of story, is actually presented to us in a positive light. And it is Hobbit genealogy. It is, it is the family trees of all the Hobbit families. Remember how we're told that the Hobbits are scrupulous about their family trees and how they can recite them chapter and verse, you know, how they can recite their, their ancestry all the way back and how they can keep track of, of you know, different branches of the family tree and keep track of third and fourth cousins, second removed in both directions, as they say, and so on and so forth. That's one example of that kind of positive documentary influence. And I wanted to kind of clarify that because I said with utter, you know, casual disregard last week that, that no, that doesn't show up in Tolkien, actually. Not that I could think of, but yes, there is one instance that I can think of, and there may be others that have not yet occurred to me. So, Shadowfax is running wild across the grass. He will let no man handle him. There he goes, away down by the ford like a shadow among the willows, and Gandalf whistles and calls his name, and he comes, of course, immediately. And Theoden gives the gift, or rather formalizes the gift, as he acknowledges with a certain irony here. The gift seems already to be given, said Theoden. Oh, look at that. My horse answers you and you alone. Huh, I should probably just give him to you then, should I? But hearken all. And now he's, he's speaking in kingly terms. Now he's declaiming as the king of, of, of Rohan. Here now I name my guest Gandalf Greyhame, wisest of counselors, most welcome of wanderers, a lord of the mark, a chieftain of the Erlingus while our kin shall last, and I give to him Shadowfax, prince of horses. So... I name my guest, Gandalf Greyhame, comma, wisest of counselors. I'm not naming him wisest of counselors. He is wisest of counselors. Most welcome of wanderers. I'm not naming him most welcome of wanderers. He is the most welcome of wanderers. I am naming him a lord of the mark. I am giving him noble title. That is it now. Within the realm of Rohan, Gandalf presumably holds land. I mean, that is what it means to, to, uh, to the Rohirrim to, to be noble. 
is that they themselves hold land. So presumably there's a package of, I don't know, Rohan's pretty big, so like a few hundred acres probably for, for Gandalf over on like the eastern side of, of Rohan. But Gandalf now holds land. He has a, a noble title. He is a chieftain of the Erlingus while our kin shall last. So this is it. He has now been adopted into the, the aristocratic noble tradition of Rohan. This, this aristocratic is the wrong word, but feudalistic tradition of Rohan, right? Which is important in two distinct ways. It means that Gandalf is now accepted. It means that Gandalf is not now a wanderer in the sense that he is a stranger or a wanderer in the sense that he is a foreigner. Now, in every way that is legal, in every way that is practical, he is Rohirric himself. He is of Rohan, as much of Rohan as any other holder of that title. But it means something else too, because the way that feudalistic structures work if you have a title, it is because you owe fealty upwards and give protection downwards. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that Gandalf is going to have tenant farmers on whatever spit of land he's been given by the king, you know, presumably in, in this instance. And, and perhaps it is a, a formal title that the Rohirrim have that doesn't actually come with land at all or any responsibility downwards. He may not have to protect farmers or worry about, you know, the road being washed out or, or you know, incursions by wolves from the Misty Mountains or anything else. He doesn't necessarily have to have any downward, uh, any, any protective inclination here down that feudalistic chain. But it sure as hell means that he owes fealty to Theoden, right? That is what being a lord of Rohan means, is that you owe fealty to the crown. He is now a part of the feudalistic structure. Now, is Theoden ever going to hold him to that? Probably not. Probably not. But it is there nonetheless. It's not just a gift of a horse, right? He doesn't just give Shadowfax, no. Theoden integrates Gandalf into his into his feudalistic structure, and crucially, for what plays out in the course of the next chapter, into his, you know, military hierarchy too, which is, coincidentally, exactly the same as the feudalistic structure, right? There are no civilian lords here present in Rohan, and we know that because there are no lords left, right? Only the civilians are left behind. All the lords are riding to war. All the able-bodied men are riding to war. So the feudalistic structure of Rohan is the same as the militaristic hierarchy of the company of Rohan, if you like, the, the last host of Rohan that is now riding out into the west. And of course, Gandalf then reveals himself again, which is maybe the fourth, maybe fifth time that Gandalf has done this trick since he came back, right? We've had a lot of Gandalf revealing himself. Gandalf uncloaked is now more common to us and more, more familiar to us than Gandalf cloaked. Then suddenly he threw back his gray cloak and cast aside his hat and leapt to horseback. He wore no helm nor mail. His snowy hair flew free in the wind. His white robes shone dazzling in the sun. Behold the white rider, cried Aragorn, and all took up the words. And that all taking up the words, I think, is significant. One of the reasons that Gandalf is brought into the, the hierarchical structure of Rohiric culture here is that now he is their symbol. Now he means something to them. It's not about, oh, here we are riding to war, and also we've got the King of Gondor with us, and also a wizard. How cool is that? And an elf and a dwarf. We've got some buddies. This is great. No, he's not an external icon anymore. Now he is an internal icon. He is the White Rider. He is Gandalf of Rohan, Gandalf Greyhaim here. And that takes us right to the end of chapter six. Let me catch up here with the uh, 
with the chat. Gosh, a lot in the chat that I have missed. Um, okay, I'll just scroll all the way down and catch up. I do apologize. You guys, if there's ever something particularly brilliant in the chat that I miss because I'm busy talking during these live sessions, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at paperbullets or at Point North Media, or you can email me directly, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. I will always see those messages and try to respond. I have uh, an idle hope that someday, somehow, maybe when I take a week off between Christmas and New Year, I'm going to get to Inbox Zero. That's going to be a lovely day if that ever happens. I might just live tweet my adventures in that regard, but yeah, pretty pretty, uh, pretty tough. Um, okay, let's see. <laughs> Leslie Skipa says, Gandalf Uncloaked behind the wizardry, my favorite new VH1 show. Yes, that's it would be great, wouldn't it? Just kind of like a I want to be like an inside the wizard studio. Like, you know, he's sitting, he's wearing a polo shirt. He's holding a cup of coffee. He's just talking very casually about what it is to be a wizard. Yeah. A polo shirt. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for like a, like a, what is the right, ah, I'm trying to think of the right, like aesthetic image for this. No, he's wearing like a, like a black turtleneck, right? He's <laughs> with his little cup of, of French coffee. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Seastar says Gandalf is an habitual semi-stripper. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, he, he likes uncloaking himself. And you know what? When you've been around as long as Gandalf has been around, you can uncloak yourself anytime you like. That's what I say. Good. Good. Christopher Hansen says, best way to inbox zero, declare email bankruptcy. Yeah, that's the other tempting thing, right? I don't know. It's a hill I want to climb, though. It's a hill I want to climb, but it's a very big hill. I have something like, no, see, I have the reminder right here on my screen. I have 1,400 emails that need to be answered. It's pretty bad. Okay, let's keep pushing on here into Chapter 7, Helm's Deep. As the second day of their riding drew on, the heaviness in the air increased. In the afternoon, the dark clouds began to overtake them, a somber canopy with great billowing edges flecked with dazzling light. The sun went down, blood red in a smoking haze. The spears of the riders were tipped with fire as the last shafts of light kindled the steep faces of the peaks of, Thri of Thrihirn. Now very near, they stood on the northernmost arm of the White Mountains, three jagged horns staring at the sunset. In the last red glow, man in the vanguard saw a black speck, a horseman riding back towards them. They halted, awaiting him. He came, a weary man with dinted helm and cloven shield. Slowly he climbed from his horse and stood there a while, gasping. At length he spoke. "'Is Aomer here?' he asked. "'You come at last, but too late and with too little strength.' Things have gone evilly since Theodred fell. We were driven back yesterday over the Isen with great loss. Many perished at the crossing. Then at night fresh forces came over the river against our camp. All Isengard must be emptied, and Saruman has armed the wild hellmen and herdfolk of the Dunland beyond the rivers, and there also he loosed upon us. We were overmastered. The shield wall was broken. Herkenbrand of Westvolt has, has drawn off those men he could gather toward his fastness in Helm's Deep. The rest are scattered. Where is Aomer? Tell him there is no hope ahead. He should return to Edoras before the wolves of Isengard come there. Theoden had sat silent, hidden from the man's sight behind his guards. Now he urged his horse forward. Come, stand before me, Curl, he said. I am here. The last host of the Aerolingus has ridden forth. It will not return without battle. The man's face lighted with joy and wonder. He drew himself up. Then he knelt, offering his notched sword to the king. Command me, lord, he cried, and pardon me. I thought... You thought I remained in Medicelt, bent like an old tree under winter snow. So it was when you rode to war. But a west wind has shaken the boughs, said Theoden. Give this man a fresh horse. Let us ride to the help of Erkenbrand. A lot here to enjoy. Erkenbrand, first off, one of my favorite characters in all of the Lord of the Rings. Maybe my favorite character in the Lord of the Rings who doesn't get a single line of dialogue. He's pretty great. We're going to talk more about him toward the end of the chapter. But let's see this account. So we talked last time. Um, 
about the the death of Theodred, the death of the heir to uh, Theoden's throne, right? This is his only son. He dies during the first battle of the Fords of Isen, which happened a week ago, uh, as we're uh, as we're now writing out to the Fords of Isen again. But his force has remained in place. This is why um, this is why Edoras is is somewhat diminished right now because many of the men of Rohan are still out in the field. So this writer, <coughs> excuse me, Curl here, this writer is. Um, is a, a, a writer, a messenger from this host. He's seeking Aomer, but he's bringing bad news. He's bringing ill tidings back to Aomer. Is Aomer here? You come at last, but too late and with too little strength. Things have gone evilly since Theodred fell. So we've been waiting for you. We've been holding on for you. We've been waiting for reinforcement. And now here you are. And it's not enough. This isn't enough. This is really bad. I've got my dinted helm and my cloven shield. I've taken, you know, the dinted helm, the cloven shield, the notched sword. These details tell us exactly what kind of hell this man has been through. And he is defeated. We were driven back yesterday over the Eisen with great loss. Many perished at the crossing there. At night, fresh forces came over the river against our camp. All Isengard must be emptied, and so on and so forth. We were overmastered. The shield wall was broken. The shield wall, this Anglo-Saxon infantry tradition of, of marshalling a line of troops. The, the front row have their shields uh, held out in front of them to protect against direct attack. And then the second row will stand very close to them with their shields held aloft to protect them from arrows and, and projectiles. That's the shield wall. It was a very powerful defensive formation, but it was over. Overmastered. The shield wall was broken. Erkenbrand of Westfold has drawn off those men he could gather toward his fastness in Helm's Deep. The rest are scattered. We are broken. That's it. There's no force left there now. Erkenbrand has taken as many as he could marshal down toward Helm's Deep because we'll just hide out there, I guess. Everyone else just scattered across the, the endless plains of Rohan. There is now no martial force for the, the Ruhirim facing off against the, the, the massed might of Isengard. This is terrible. And then he caps it, right? Where is Aomer? Tell him there is no hope ahead. He should return to Edoras before the wolves of Isengard come there. It's, it's forget it. We're, we're sunk. There's no way we can win. The battle is over. The war is basically over. Head back to Edoras. Maybe we can protect our, our holdings for now. That's it. That's as good as it gets. I'm done. Then Theoden comes up. Theoden had sat silent, sat silent, hidden from the man's sight behind his guards. Now he urged his horse forward, coming out from behind his protection to, to meet with this man. He is condescending to this man, as a king should be. Come stand before me, Curl. I am here. The last hosts of the Aer Lingus have ridden forth. It, it will not return without battle. And then we get the same response from this man. This man who has been through hell. This man who is exhausted. This man who is without hope has the same response as the guards back in the Golden Hall, right back in, 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 Methusel, in, in Methusel. Um He drew himself up, then he he knelt, offering his notch sword to the king. Command me, Lord, he says. This is what happens when the king is revealed. This is what happens when purpose is restored. Where is Aomer, he says, coming in first, exhausted, drained of hope, but not now. Command me, Lord. Tell me to go back into the fight, and I will. I am ready to go. And Theoden admits, you know, you thought I remained in Medicine belt, bent like an old tree under winter snow. So it was when you rode to war, but a west wind has shaken the boughs. Give this man a fresh horse. Let us ride to the help of Erkenbrand. Let us ride forth to Helm's Deep. Um, let me see. Uh, Erkenbrand sounds in my language as someone who is extremely fiery, truly on fire, says Emily. Oh, how interesting. Well, um, yeah, brand, meaning uh, a, a torch, meaning a... Um, Meaning, uh, you know, a, a flaming torch in the kind of, you know, Indiana Jones dungeon adventurer kind of sense of a flaming torch, right? 
That is what brand literally means, but by the medieval period, it was already being co-opted uh, into a, a kind of cliched metaphor to represent a sword or a blade. So the brand part, and obviously, you know, we can talk about other brands in other fantasy stories if we're so inclined, but the brand part means, yeah, a flaming torch or a sword, and sometimes those two images combined into a flaming sword. Erkan is interesting because Erkan is taken from the uh, old English root Eorkan, which means precious. Eorkan is the word that Tolkien used to indicate the, the preciousness of the Arkenstone in The Hobbit. That is why the Arkenstone, the, the Eorkenstana, is the, the, the relic of the dwarves. It literally means just, just precious stone, right? That is what the Arkenstone means. So here we're kind of recycling that notion of, of preciousness here into Erkenbrand. It would be Eorkenbrand. I think would be the, the kind of the old English version of that, kind of rendered here in the Rohiric Erkenbrand. Again, just a really great, really great character here, it turns out, even though, as I say, he doesn't say anything. Oh, the other thing that we should talk about here is the, uh, the Thrihirna, uh, Thrihirna or Thrihirna here in the, uh, the fourth line of this slide. That means um, the, the, um, the, the three peaks, the, the, three, uh, the three corners, I suppose, right? Like the, 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 the three, yeah, three angles, corners in the sense of points, right? Not corners, it's not describing a triangle. Uh, I suppose you could use it to describe a triangle, but that's not what it means. It means three three separate points, three separate peaks, and it is referring to the three peaks on the northern spur of the uh, of the White Mountains here. So this is our introduction to how things are going out in the field. Now we have ridden out. The, the host of Rohan has ridden forth. The last host of Rohan has ridden forth. It will not return without a battle. Things are about to throw down here in, uh, in the fields of Rohan, but... The, the troops that they thought they were riding to support have already been broken, have already, um, have already fled. So yeah, yeah, good. So Gandalf, who is no longer a horse thief, goes off to get a brand, says Shane. Very nice, very nice, very good, yes. <laughs> oh, we're talking a little about Thor Ragnarok here in the chat. Uh, I like that movie. You can find out my thoughts on that movie by heading on over to Common Room Radio and listening to the Excelsior podcast, uh, where we recently talked about Thor Ragnarok. And the next episode will be a discussion of... Well, the next episode is going to be a mini discussion of the Infinity War trailer, which was released this week. But the next real episode will be a discussion of uh, Brian K. Vaughn's fantastic series, Runaways. I think we're going to do the entire first volume of Runaways, which I think is like the first 16 issues. It's, it's quite a lot, but it's very, very good. I like that book a lot. So, uh, yes, you can head on over to commonroomradio.com to find that. Okay, let's get into uh, our next slide as Gandalf departs. Gandalf you know, Gandalfs. If we're ever going to verb Gandalf's name, then it will mean to disappear without sufficient explanation for narrative reasons, right? That's what to Gandalf means. So, while Theoden was speaking, Gandalf rode a short way ahead, and he sat there alone, gazing north to Isengard and west to the setting sun. Now he came back. Ride, Theoden, he said. Ride to Helm's Deep. Go not to the fords of Isen, and do not tarry in the plain. I must leave you for a while. Shadowfax must bear me now on a swift errand. Turning to Aragorn and Aomer and the men of the king's household, he cried, Keep well, the lord of the mark, till I return. Await me at Helm's Gate. Farewell! He spoke a word to Shadowfax, and like an arrow from the bow, the great horse sprang away. Even as they looked, he was gone. A flash of silver in the sunset, a wind over the grass, a shadow that fled and passed from sight. Snowmane snorted and reared, eager to follow, but only a swift bird on the wing could have overtaken him. "'What does that mean?' said one of the guard to Hama. "'That Gandalf Greyhame has need of haste,' answered Hama. "'Ever he goes and comes unlooked for.' "'Wormtongue were here, would not find it hard to explain,' said the other. "'True enough,' said Hama. "'But for myself, I will wait until I see Gandalf again.' "'Maybe you will wait long,' said the other.' discord in the ranks here. No one is bringing this to Theoden, of course. No one is going to speak ill of the newest lord of the mark to Theoden King, 
but there will be some muttering among the men of lower rank. Wormtongue, were he here, would not find it hard to explain, says one of the guards. Oh, Gandalf's gone? Really? Interesting. Right before our big fight, huh? Right before the orcs of Isengard are about to fall on us, Gandalf suddenly realized, oh, is that the time? I must have left the oven on. I'll be right back. And shoots off across the horizon on Shadowfax. Ah, convenient. Convenient that that should happen. Hama has none of it. True enough, said Hama. It's true that Wormtongue would not find this hard to explain. For myself, I will wait until I see Gandalf again. By implication, which I will, because he is riding off to take care of an errand and will not abandon us in this, our hour of need. Maybe you'll wait long, said the other, just kind of cantankerous and grumbly there. So, Gandalf, Gandalf's away. He, he disappears away. Off I go, he says, and we push on to Helm's Deep. The host turned away now from the road to the fords of Isen and bent their course southward. Night fell and still they rode on. The hills drew near and the tall peaks of Thrahiran were already dim against the darkening sky. Still some miles away on the far side of the Westfold Vale, a great bay in the mountains lay a green coombe out of which a gorge opened in the hills. Men of that land called it Helm's Deep, after a hero of old wars who had made his refuge there. Ever steeper and narrower it wound inward from the north under the shadow of the Thrahiran, till the, crow, till the crow haunted excuse me, till the crow-haunted cliffs rose like mighty towers on either side, shutting out the light. At Helm's Gate, before the mouth of the deep, there was a heel of rock thrust outward by the northern cliff. There upon its spur stood high walls of ancient stone, and within them was a lofty tower. Men said that in the far-off days of the glory of Gondor, the sea kings had built here this fastness with the hands of giants, the Hornburg, it was called, for a trumpet sounded upon the tower, echoed in the deep behind, as if armies long forgotten were issuing to war from caves beneath the hills. A wall, too, the men of old had made from the Hornburg to the southern cliff, barring the, barring the entrance to the gorge. Beneath it, by a wide culvert, the deeping stream passed out. About the feet of the horn rock it wound and flowed, flowed then in a gully through the midst of a wide green gore, sloping gently down from Helm's Gate to Helm's Dyke. Thence it fell into the deeping coombe and out into the Westfold Vale. There, in the Hornburg at Helm's Gate, Erkenbrand, master of Westfold on the borders of the Mark, now dwelt. As the days darkened with threat of war, being wise, he had repaired the wall and made the fastness strong. So Erkenbrand is of Helm's Deep. He has occupied Helm's Deep, which, as we know, was occupied by a mythic hero. Men of the land called it Helm's Deep after a hero of old wars that had made his refuge there. Fantastic. Uh, a refuge of the heroes of old wars? This is perfect. Tell us about Helm. Tell us about Helm Hammerhand. Well, he was, oh, I have written in my notes here. I couldn't remember earlier, but I have written in my notes here that he was, in fact, the ninth king of Rohan. And as I said, the last king of that first line. Um, Helm did not build this place. He did not build the Hornburg. We get that here. Men said that in far-off days of the glory of Gondor, the sea kings had built here this fastness with the hands of giants. The Numenorians built the Hornburg. The Numenorians are responsible for this incredible construction. And I take, um, I take built here this fastness with the hands of giants. I take that to be mythic too. I don't think that even if we allow for the existence of giants in the world of J.R.R. Tolkien, which as you know, I've had some thoughts about in the past, uh, even if we allow for the existence of giants, I think that this is mythic. This feels like the kind of, you know, the sea kings built with the hands of giants. It isn't necessarily the case that actual giants were involved in the construction of the Hornburg, simply that it seems so implausibly immense, so, so implausibly austere that it must have been created by some greater force, you know, not just the sea kings of, of of Numenorean tradition, but of some greater power still. So this was constructed a long, long time ago by the Numenorean kings. <clears throat> 
So what then of Hama? What then of the ninth king of Rohan? Well, you'll remember as we were writing up to Eteros, we were counting off the burial mounds, right? And there haven't been that many kings. 500 years Rohan has stood. And it turns out that Helm Hammerhand lived about 250 years ago. He's not that ancient. But this ties back to our discussion last time about the ways in which the Rohirrim don't preserve their memory. They don't preserve their history in quite the same way as the other cultures that we've studied in our journey, our, our exploration through Middle-earth. Other cultures record in song and in story, or if you're a hobbit, record in complicated family tree charts, you know, in complicated uh, genealogy charts there. But the Rohirrim seem to let the past go. It is like the rain on the mountainside. It is like the coming of years off the sea. It is like the, the smoke of dead wood, right? That was the, the poem that Aragorn gave us, which purported to be about Aerol the Young, but was really about how we don't really remember Aerol the Young. It just isn't that significant. <clears throat> it's just the, the passage of time. The years pass, and already 250 years, which is a blink of an eye in Tolkien's Legendarium, right? Like, like, the hobbits can talk about things that happened 250 years ago. Bilbo himself has lived half that amount, right? This is still fairly recent history. It's not that much more than double Aragorn's lifespan at this point. It, it's not that long ago. And yet, Helm Hammerhand, for the Rohirrim, has already passed into myth. He's not even real. He's not even remembered. He's, he's just this mythic, mythic figure. Um, men of that land called it, call, excuse me, men of that land called it Helm's Deep after a hero of old wars who made his refuge there. A hero of old war. We're not even naming the war. We're not even naming the conflict which drove him there, which is actually, um, the conflict itself is actually really interesting. Uh, this is a conflict between the men of the Rohirrim and the, the Dunlendings, the, uh, the, the men folk who have been recruited by Saruman here. Um, basically, it's all, it's all pretty bad. There's an ongoing conflict which has already lasted a generation or more. There is a final uh, fight at the crossings of Aizen, right? They, they, they clash again at the fords of Aizen, and then Helm retreats back to the Hornburg. He retreats back to what will someday become known as Helm's Deep, and he holds it through the the long winter, and he's blowing his horn, and he's trying to, to rout the Dunlendings. He's trying to, to preserve his force all through the winter, but then it fails. Then his defense falters, and the Dunlendings swarm in and slay everyone. So the glory of Helm Hammerhand is that he fell at the Hornburg, that the Hornburg wasn't taken, but he did not survive. Um, it, the quote here, during one of his night sorties, Helm died apparently from famine and cold. His body was discovered frozen in the snow, still standing and ready to fight, which is pretty great. So the Hornburg didn't fall, technically, but also Helm didn't survive this conflict. Yeah. Good, good. All right. So let's, um, oh, Angela's asking about, um, we're, we're talking about a map of the, um, the map of the Atlas, uh, the Atlas of Middle Earth, which is so gorgeous. I was just looking at that today. I'm actually missing it. You can see behind me on the, uh, on the shelf here, I have my, or at least part of my, I have the part of my collection of Tolkien books that isn't actually just arrayed on the desk around me for all of the prep work that I've been doing here. So I have some half of my Tolkien books are behind me, but I don't have the Atlas of Middle-earth. I absolutely need to get that. It is gorgeous. And they have a very good uh, Helm's Deep map, like a layout here. All you need to know really is that there is the Hornburg itself, which is the structure, and then the wall that that crosses the veil, in effect, that that comes between these two solid cliffs of 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 stone on either side. It is completely impassable unless the wall is taken, unless the wall is destroyed, which, hey, is about to happen. 
The host passed through the breach and halted at the sloping sward above. They now learned to their joy that Erkenbrand had left many men to hold Helm's, Helm's Gate, and more had since escaped thither. Maybe we have a thousand fit to fight on foot, said Gamling, an old man, the leader of those that watched the dike. But most of them have seen too many winters, as I have, or too few, as my son's son here. What news of Erkenbrand? Word came yesterday he was retreating hither with all that is left of the best riders of Westfold, but he has not come. I fear he will not come now, said Aylmer. Our scouts have gained no news of him, and the enemy fills all the valley behind us. I would that he had escaped, said Theoden. He was a mighty man. In him lived again the valor of Helm the Hammerhand. But we cannot await him here. We must draw all our forces now behind the walls. Are you well stored? We bring little provision, for we rode forth to open battle, not to siege. Behind us in the caves of the deep are three parts of the folk of the Westfold, uh, the Westfold, old and young children and women, said Gamling. But great store of food and many beasts and their fodder have also been gathered there. That is well, said Aylmer. They are burning or despoiling all that is left in the vale. If they come to bargain for our goods at Helm's Gate... Oh, excuse me, I'm doing the wrong voice. If they come to bargain for our goods at Helm's Gate, they will pay a high price, said Gamling. So... Erkenbrand has left a, a token force behind at Helm's Gate, right? He has protected his holding by leaving some man behind. But also, the youngest and the oldest and the women are sequestered away in the caves that are protected by, by Helm's Gate. That is to say, they are protected in the Helm's Deep itself, in the, the caverns behind here, along with a great stock of provision, which is great because the forces of Isengard, as they are pursuing the, the Rohirrim forces, the Rohiric forces south, are burning and despoiling the Vale. They are just destroying everything in their path. So there is now no food. And of course, our forces, the forces of Theoden, rode out without any you know, baggage train. They rode out without many supplies at all because they thought they were going to battle. They thought they were going to go and fight at the, the fords of the Eisen and then push forward into Isengard and we'll be gone maybe a couple weeks. And then either way, it's going to be over, right? Either way, it's going to be done. We were not preparing for a long siege. So they didn't carry that great stock of provisions. But it's okay because we have provisions. So Erkenbrand is gone. His... his um, his personal, you know, army has gone, but he left some people behind and more have filtered back after the, the Rohiric forces were, were smashed and splintered at the fords of Aizen, uh, following the tale that we got at the beginning of the chapter. Many of them have filtered down here and are now taking up arms once more. Though, um, as we say, uh, mo uh, mo most of them, as Gamling says, most of them have seen too many winters as I have or too few as my son's son here. What news of Erkenbrand? And Aomer says, well, I, feel that he will, I fear that he will not come now. Erkenbrand is dead. And Theoden certainly seems to think that he's dead. I would that he had escaped. I wish that he had escaped. He has not escaped, says Theoden. He was a mighty man. He was, past tense here, he was a mighty man. In him lived again the valor of Helm the Hammerhand. But we cannot await him here. This is it. It's, it's done. He's gone. This is our stock. We are ready now for a siege. The orcs are coming. This is what is going to happen. So we're going to do, we're going to do I should say, two quick uh, vignettes here, almost, almost vignettes, and then we'll get to the conclusion. Um, this siege, though, says Gildarts Winters, uh, yes, yes. Uh, Ty says, is this praise for the man real, or is it because he has died? Well, I, I think it's, I think it's real. I think that this is actually sincere. I think that, A, Theoden doesn't strike me as the kind of man who would, as, as the kind of king who would praise a man unduly even after his death. I think that he would speak honestly here, but we can be more sure of this because Erkenbrand is holding Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep is his fastness, right? He has restored this fastness against the coming darkness. He knows that that stuff is going to happen, that, that war is coming, that, that it is about to throw down here in the Vale of Rohan. He is, is ready for it. And entrusting 
a strategic position like Helm's Deep to any Lord of the Mark is a significant choice by Theoden King, right? It makes sense that he still holds his court in the the civil capital of Rohan, if you like, in Edoras. Like that makes a certain amount of sense. It's certainly more convenient. We're going to have more, you know, better agriculture and so on and so forth. But there's no doubt that, I mean, specifically, we are told that Helm's Deep is a better strategic position than Edoras, a better strategic position than anywhere in Rohan, arguably a better strategic position than anywhere this side of, of Minas Tirith itself, if not including Minas Tirith. It has never been taken. It has stood since the time of the Sea Kings. It has been around forever. This is the place to be. So the fact that Theoden has entrusted the holding of Helm's Deep to Urkenbrand certainly suggests that Urkenbrand himself is, is the real deal, right? And then, well, okay, you've all read the chapter, you know, when he shows up, the response that we get from the the assembled Erlingas there, the, the assembled writers of Rohan, is pretty good too. So yeah, no, I take it to be completely sincere, yes. Um, Joseph says, honestly, if we still had Helm the Hammerhand, this thing would be sorted out in an afternoon. Yeah, Helm the Hammerhand, by the way, he has that name for two reasons. The first is that he, uh, when when the Dunlendings come back to uh, to Edoras and, and, you know, it, it is about to hit the fan. Things are about to turn very ugly indeed. He just punches the guy out. He just knocks him out in a single blow, and that earns him the name uh, Hammerhand. And then there is, uh, I'm going to misremember this part of the story now, but there is a, another event during the Siege of Helm's Deep. During the Siege of, of uh, yeah, during the Siege of Helm's Deep, there is another story where he apparently punches out a snow troll with, again, a single punch. Just just knocks that knocks that sucker right out. So yeah, uh, maybe someone has that, has that uh, story in front of them and can remember that. I think this is actually told in the appendices right at the end of the book. So yeah, we'll, we'll circle around to that right at the end. Good, good, okay. Oh, Ty says, I adore the names like Oakenshield and Hammerhand. Hammerhand is very good. Helm, Hammerhand, very good. Particularly like very good in the, the Rohiric tradition, right? Because Rohiric traditions are so Anglo-Saxon, there the power of alliteration is even more significant than it is in, in our kind of, of modern English tradition, right? In, in modern English, we tend to downplay alliteration. We are, if anything, a little skeptical of alliteration, but alliteration is very, very powerful in Anglo-Saxon language and in Anglo-Saxon culture. So the fact that it alliterates like that, helm hammer hand, yeah, that's that's mythic. That's that's serious business. Okay, so we're going to get, as I said, two brief vignettes. The first here, Gimli and Legolas. I couldn't skip over this. This is, of course, a very important chapter for Gimli and Legolas because this is where we start to see their real friendship, their competition, their, their friendly rivalry here. We get a weird beat from Gimli where he complains that he has hewn nothing but trees since leaving Lothlorien, which is in conflict with Legolas's account that he and Gimli slay, uh, slew many orcs back at Parthgallon, you know, while Boromir was beset, that they themselves slew many orcs. But, you know, maybe Gimli is just speaking metaphorically here, or maybe inadvertently he just didn't kill any orcs back at Parthgallon. Legolas was just too quick off the mark. We, we can't be sure about that. In any case, this is our little vignette here, a little friendship vignette. Gimli stood leaning against the breastwork upon the wall. Legolas sat above on the parapet, fingering his bow and peering out into the gloom. This is more to my liking, said the dwarf, stamping on the stones. Ever my heart rises as we draw near the mountains. There is good rock here. This country has tough bones. I feel them in my feet as we came up from the dike. Give me a year and a hundred of my kin and I will make this a place that the armies would break upon like water. I do not doubt it, said Legolas. But you are a dwarf and dwarves are strange folk. I do not like this place, and I shall like it no more by the light of day. But you comfort me, Gimli, and I am glad to have you standing nigh with your stout legs and your hard axe. I wish there were more of your kin among us, but even more, even more would I give for a hundred good archers of Mirkwood. We shall need them. The Rohirrim have good bowmen after their fashion, but there are too few here. Too few. 
It is dark for archery, said Gimli. Indeed, it is time for sleep. Sleep! I feel the need of it as never I thought any dwarf could. Riding is tiring work. Yet my axe is restless in my hand. Give me a row of orc necks and room to swing, and all weariness will fall from me. Just a great little little friendship thing here from uh, from Gimli and Legolas. It's pretty great. Uh, let me see as I catch up with the chat. Oh, It Don't Connect has joined us. Excellent. Good to have you here. Um, yes. <laughs> Heroes and Bard says, this is so ridiculous, and I love it, this and their little competition. It's so great. It's genuinely heartwarming it's genuinely um it's it's genuinely intimate in a way that we get very few intimate relationships in Tolkien that aren't also simultaneously heightened aren't also simultaneously operatic right the relationship between Frodo and Sam is incredibly intimate and is a thing of utter beauty but it is also it is also grand right it is the stuff of of epic myth of the most epic myth in fact the friendship between Legolas and Gimli never really ascends to that level it never really becomes you know and now children gather around and we shall tell you the tale of Legolas and Gimli we shall sing the deeds of Legolas and Gimli we shall sing of their contest of orc necks hewn you know it never really ascends to that level, but it is nonetheless completely intimate and wonderful. Even this first line, this first line tells you everything you need to know. Gimli stood leaning against the breastwork upon the wall. Legolas sat above on the parapet, fingering his bow and peering out into the gloom. So Gimli's just there, you know, arms folded, kicking his heels. Just, you know, if he had a cigar, he would smoke a cigar. I am certain of this. And Legolas sitting up on the parapet, fingering his bow, just just constantly ready, constantly, you know, edgy, just, just ready to go, looking out into the gloom. And the dwarf's just kind of appreciating the stonework, appreciating the bulwark here. I like it very, very much. And we get these nice beats of intimacy, right? This country has tough bones. I felt them in my feet as we came up from the dike. Give me a year and a hundred of my kin. I would make this place, I would make this a place that armies would break upon like water. So still, this is a Numenorean fastness that has never been claimed by an army. And Gimli's looking at it and saying, no, pretty good. Give me a year, I could really turn it into something. This is you know, classic, the, the classic dwarven response. Oh, really? The architecture of other races? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's got potential. It's a fixer-upper, right? Like, like we're going to need an HGTV, HGTV camera crew here, you know, just to really turn it into something. We'll get you a, a water feature and a barbecue pit or something. But, you know, it's going to look really great after a year. A year and a hundred dwarves, we could really make this something. And Legolas laughs at him. I do not doubt it, but you're a dwarf and dwarves are strange folk. I don't like this place. This is weird. All the stone and the severity, the austerity of it. There are no trees here. There's no, you know, waterfall laughing away in the background. This is, ugh, no, thank you. But we see a big turn. You comfort me, Gimli. I am glad to have you standing nigh with your stout legs and your hard axe. I wish there were more of your kin among us, but even more would I, uh, even more would I give for a hundred good archers of Mirkwood. We shall need them. The Rohirrim have good bowmen after their fashion, but there are too few here. Too few. So Legolas is doing exactly the same thing, right? Gimli's looking at the same, yeah, okay, solid construction. I could really turn it into something. That would give me a year and a hundred folk. It'd be fine. And Legolas is like, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's crazy, you dumb dwarf. But anyway, we have archers. They were here and have archers, good archers after their fashion, but give me a hundred elven archers. Give me a hundred elven archers. We could really do something. You want to see a thing? Let me show you a thing. It's exactly the same. These two people disconnected from their context, disconnected from their entire world, in a sense. And we didn't really talk about this transition as we reach Edoras. You know, we were talking about the, the thresholds that we get, the kind of nested thresholds that we get. The first threshold, I suppose, for Aragorn is, again, meeting with Gandalf on the fringes of Fangorn Forest. But then we get, when we get to Edoras itself, we get the outer wall, and then we get, you know, Hama holding forth uh, before the Golden Hall itself. So we're crossing these thresholds. But interestingly, we're crossing these thresholds into 
what, the mortal realm, I suppose, right? We've left behind dwarven excess and elven beauty and artistry and, and the height of elven culture, and now we're in the realm of men, and nobody belongs here. Like, Aragorn doesn't even really belong here. Aragorn of, of Numenorean descent doesn't really belong here, but Legolas and Gimli even less so. This is not their place. This is not their fight. They are here because it is the right thing to do. Yeah. You're pretty great, Gimli, quotes, uh, or, or uh, attributes Jackie here. You're pretty great, Gimli, but I'd rather have more elves. Yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, let me see here. Good. All right. So that's our first of two little... Uh, that's our first of two little uh, vignettes here. Heroes and Bar says, It's kind of interesting that Legolas and Gimli are the only ones of their race in the Fellowship and so band together. Yeah. Um, mm, okay. I'm almost at time, so I'm not going to get into that now, but we will have an opportunity to talk about Legolas and Gimli, the ways in which they are representative of elves and dwarves, the ways in which their friendship is a token of a greater unity in the fourth age between elves and dwarves, potentially at least, or by contrast, the way in which their friendship is unique. We'll, we'll talk about that as we move forward. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's push onward to our second little vignette, Eomer and Aragorn. Eomer and Aragorn stood together on the deeping wall. They heard the roar of voices and the thudding of the rams, and then in a sudden flash of light they beheld the peril of the gates. Come, said Aragorn, this is the hour when we draw swords together. Running like fire, they sped along the wall and up the steps and passed onto the outer court upon the rock. As they ran, they gathered a handful of stout swordsmen. There was a small postern door that opened at an angle into the burg wall on the west, where the cliffs stretched out to meet it. On that side, a narrow path ran round toward the great gate between the wall and the sheer brink of the rock. Together, Aramar and Aragorn sprang through the door, the men close behind. The two swords flashed from the sheath as one. Guthwine, cried Aramar. Guthwine for the mark! Underil, cried Aragorn. Underil for the Dunedain! Charging from the side, they hurled themselves upon the wild man. Underil rose and fell, gleaming with white fire. A shout went up from the wall and tower. Underil! Underil goes to war! The blade that was broken shines again! Dismayed, the rammers let fall the trees and turned to fight, but the wall of their shields was broken as by a lightning stroke, and they were swept away, hewn down or cast over the rock into the stony stream below. The orc archers shot wildly and then fled. So Aomer and Aragorn, just kicking it. Aomer and Aragorn just relaxing together on the deeping wall. Then they hear the roar of voices, the thudding of the rams, and there in a sudden flash of light, they beheld the peril of the gates. So there is a flash and they see, oh no, this is it. This is the moment. Aragorn says, come, this is the hour when we draw swords together. They race into battle together. Their swords, uh, their swords unsheathed at that same moment. Two swords flash from the sheath as one. We're drawing Powerful connections here between Eomer of Rohan and Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of, of Elendil and Isildur, right? We're drawing a powerful similarity between these two men, and that is a similarity that is only to Eomer's benefit, right? Eomer is clearly a great man. He is clearly not of the old blood. He is not of the Dúnedain. He is not of the old kingdom, but he is strong and virtuous and noble and gets to stand alongside Aragorn in this moment. And we get to see that there is still a distinction drawn there, right? So he calls out, Guthwene, cried Eomer. Guthwene for the mark. Underil, cried Aragorn. Underil for the Dunedain, right? We're getting these, these same kind of, the, the, this, this repetition here, the calling of the name of the blade. Uh, Guthwene is the name of Eomer's sword, which brilliantly, brilliantly translates directly from the Old English, from the, the Anglo-Saxon tradition as battle friend or war friend. This is Battlefriend, my sword. I kind of love that. That might be one of my favorite, in terms of like the translated name. I mean, Flame of the West, pretty good, right? Underil, pretty good name for a sword. But Battlefriend, 
This is my battle buddy. He's my little battle buddy. It's a pretty good name for a sword. Anyway, I'm just nerding out and getting distracted by it. I just love that. Guzmane cried Aramar. Guzmane for the mark. Andoril cried Aragorn. Andoril for the Dunedain. Interesting. Andoril for the Dunedain here. Aragorn, it seems to me, is... Okay, first, why is that interesting? The fact that he's calling out the Dunedain, the fact that he's calling out the rangers of the north and not calling out... Well, he can't call out the men of Rohan, right? He's not fighting for the men of Rohan. He has not been normalized into Rohiric culture in quite the same way as Gandalf has. This is one of the reasons that I, I drew attention to Gandalf's appointment as a Lord of the Mark earlier in our discussion today. Aragorn is a stranger. He is still a foreigner. But he is not yet fighting for Gondor. He is not yet fighting for any other force but the Dúnedain. That is, he is fighting for his people in this moment. But there's also a sense in which, in which he's drawing a comparison, I think, between the rangers of the north and the, the Rohirrim of the south, that these Rohirrim fled from, or didn't flee from the north, were called from the north by the Gondorians five centuries before, formed that alliance, settled here. They have splintered from their parent culture. Their language has changed now. There are no people like the Rohirrim anywhere on earth, and it is fair to say that there are no people like the Dúnedain anywhere on earth. It seems to me that this is an example of Aragorn not consciously uh, condescending to Aomer here, but finding himself very much on a level footing with Aomer, right? He's, he's referencing the, the rootless rangers of the north, not the kingdom of Arnor, not the kingdom of Gondor, not for Numenor, not for Elendil, not for Isildur, not for anything else, for the Dúnedain. He's drawing the, he's voluntarily, because he's going second, drawing the direct contra, uh, the direct comparison there with Aomer. Guthwine cried Aomer, Guthwine for the mark, Anduril cried Aragorn, Anduril for the Dúnedain. He's drawing that comparison and doing so, if not, you know, consciously, he's, he's doing it naturally, perhaps. But then, charging from the side, they hurled themselves upon the wild man. Underil rose and fell, gleaming with a white fire, and a shout went up from wall and tower. Underil, Underil goes to war. The blade that was broken shines again. No one's shouting about Guthwene here. No one, battle buddy. No one says, hey, battle buddy, battle buddy's fighting the orcs right now. No, that's not a thing that's happening. Anduril is still special. Aragorn is still special. And that's fine because Aragorn should be special. He is the king. He is the heir of Isildur, right? He is the returning king. And his specialness is not, his exceptionalism is not something of which we ought to be suspicious. It is innate. He is appointed by God as kings are, you know, in the, the, the medieval Western tradition here. He is appointed by God and thus he is special. The blade that he bears is special. It is more important than Eomer. But that doesn't mean that his condescension to Aomer is irrelevant or is insincere or is, you know, condescension means a, a deliberate lowering of one's status, right? When he is choosing to stand by Aomer, he is reducing himself, but doing so from wisdom and compassion and, and, and a sense of comradeship, right? He's drawing a connection here. He's bridging a gulf that actually does exist between these two. And again, this is all, this stands uneasily for, for those of us who exist in a more, you know, egalitarian 20th century or 21st century perspective. You know, particularly Americans, I think, have more trouble with this particular element of, of medieval culture and medieval, you know, monarchism than, than British people or, or European people do. You know, places where we're still fairly familiar with the trappings of, uh, of, um, of um, you know, monarchies and, and the monarchistic tradition. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see. Poor little battle buddy, says Shane. Um, good, okay. 
Joseph says, next time I go to work, I'm going to shout, Surface Pro, Surface Pro for Kepler Consulting Limited. That's very good, right? We should all just, when we go into battle, whatever form that battle takes, we should all just cry out the name of our blade. We should all, you know, grant unto our... I don't know, what, what what would I name? My phone, maybe? I suppose my phone is the primary means through which I, I interact and have any... No, it's my microphone, isn't it? It's my I need to give a name to my microphone and then call out that name as I go in. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't know. I don't even remember what kind of microphone this is, and I'm not going to disturb it now, lest the audio become completely unbearable for all of you. And we still have a couple of slides to get through. So we've had our little glimpse of Legolas and Gimli. We've had our little glimpse of Eomer and Aragorn. And now, well, the tide turns. The the battle comes to the Hornburg. It, it seems as though all is lost. There is foul sorcery. Saruman employs his his awful fire. The forces of Saruman employ their awful fire there. I mean, cannons, right? I think cannons are being employed against the gate here. And then we get the final confrontation between Aragorn and the Urukai. At last, Aragorn stood above the great gates, heedless of the darts of the enemy. As he looked forth, he saw the eastern sky grow pale. Then he raised his empty hand, palm outward in a token of parley. The orcs yelled and jeered. Come down! Come down! they cried. If you wish to speak to us, come down! Bring out your king! We are the fighting Urukai. We will fetch him from his hole if he does not come. Bring out your skulking king! The king stays or comes at his own will, said Aragorn. Then what are you doing here? they answered. Why do you look out? Do you wish to see the greatness of our army? We are the fighting Urukai. I looked out to see the dawn, said Aragorn. What of the dawn, they jeered. We are the Urukai. We do not stop the fight for night or day, for fair weather or for storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? None knows what the new day shall bring him, said Aragorn. Get you gone, ere return to your evil. Get down and we will shoot you from the wall, they cried. This is no parley. You have nothing to say. I have still this to say, answered Aragorn. No enemy has yet taken the Hornburg. Depart, or not one of you will be spared. Not one of you, not one will be left alive to take back tidings to the north. You do not know your peril. So great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn as he stood there alone above the ruined gates before the host of his enemies that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley, and some looked up doubtfully at the sky, but the orcs laughed with loud voices, and a hail of darts and arrows whistled over the wall as Aragorn leapt down. There was a roar and a blast of fire, the archway of the gate above which... He had stood a moment before, uh, excuse me, the, the archway of the gate above which he had stood a moment before crumbled and crashed in smoke and dust. The barricade was scattered as if by a thunderbolt. Aragorn ran to the king's tower, but even as the gate fell and the orcs about it yelled, preparing to charge, a murmur arose behind them, like a wind in the distance, and it grew to a clamor of many voices crying strange news in the dawn. The orcs upon the rock, hearing the rumor of dismay, wavered and looked back, and then... Sudden and terrible, from the tower above, the sound of the great horn of Helm rang out. So, we talked a lot about Theoden and hope and hopelessness and light and dark. And here, Aragorn is continuing that metaphor. He is continuing that thematic opposition between light and dark, between hope and hopelessness. Aragorn stood above the great gates, heedless of the darts of the enemy. As he looked forth, he saw the eastern sky grow pale. Then he raised his empty hand, palm outward in token of parley. Okay, so this is a, a, a symbol of the desire to speak with an enemy in the midst of war. He holds up his arm with his palm outward. Does that sound at all familiar? 
It's the Argonoth, you guys. It's the Argonoth. The palm held outward is the symbol of the Numenorean kings. It's the symbol of his forebears. He is in this moment beautifully kingly. Before he even opens his mouth, he is the embodiment of his own lineage, of his own title. So the orcs yell and jeer, come down, come down. If you wish to speak to us, come down, bring out your kid. They're just, they're, they're joyous here in the moment of their imminent victory. And Aragorn doesn't rise to the bait. The king comes or stays at his own will. Then what are you doing here? Why do you look out? Do you wish to see the greatness of our army? I looked out to see the dawn, said Aragorn. To which the orcs reply, and fair enough, what of the dawn? We're the Urukai. We do not stop the fight for night or day, for fair weather or for storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? Oh, oh, I get it. You're looking for the dawn because you think we're regular orcs. Oh, dude, my dude. This is going to go badly for you because we are the fighting Uruk-hai and we don't care about the sun. We will fight under the sun all day long. It'll be just fine. So, sorry, it's great that you're looking for the dawn and all that, but we're not regular orcs. But Aragorn is not looking for the sun because he thinks that it will drive the orcs back into shadow. No, no one knows what the new day shall bring him, said Aragorn. Get you gone ere it turn to your evil. Oh, Aragorn is looking for light. He's looking for hope and not looking for it in the sense that he is struggling to find it. He knows that it's there. He's looking, yes, looking not for hope, but at hope. He's not looking for light, but looking at light. He knows that it is coming. And here again, we see Aragorn modulate back into that kind of prophetic register, right? We've had a few instances of this throughout the book. Most recently, we had it, of course, when he surrendered Underil at, um, okay, didn't surrender, when he propped Underil against the wall back at the Golden Hall, back in, back in uh, Edoras. We had this prophecy, you know, no man touches this or he shall die. That, that is the prophetic inclination of Aragorn. And here he is speaking words of prophecy again. None knows what the day shall, uh, none knows what the new day shall bring him. Get you gone or return to your evil. Get down or we'll shoot you from the wall, they cried. This is no parley. You've nothing to say. They're done with it. Oh, okay, fine. There's nothing here. I still have this to say, says Aragorn. I have still this to say, answered Aragorn, right? So he is here to say something. He's not just looking at the light. He is here to say something. No enemy has yet taken the Hornburg. Depart or not one of you will be spared. Not one will be left alive to, bring, to take back tidings to the north. You do not know your peril. So great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn. Okay, we'll get to the power and royalty in just a moment. But these are words of prophecy. He is telling them what is going to happen. I am foresighted, he says. This is where we are. No enemy has yet taken the Hornburg. That's a statement of fact. Depart or not one of you will be spared. That is a statement of prophecy. This is your chance. The dawn is coming, and I'm not just talking about the actual sun in the sky that will drive away the orcs, and also there are a number of men here too, so, you know, there's that. They're not going to be influenced by the sun. We still face overwhelming odds. Even if the orcs of Isengard depart, we're still in deep, deep trouble here. But that's not what I'm saying to you. I'm telling you, with my foresight, with my prophetic ability, depart now, or every single one of you will die. So great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn as he stood there alone above the ruined gates before the host of his enemies that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley and some looked up doubtfully at the sky. Some looked up doubtfully at the sky. So royal is Aragorn here. So uh, empowered is Aragorn here in this moment. So this is Aragorn uncloaked again, right? Unshrouded by his, by his ranger persona. Now here he is the king revealed and so powerful is he, so striking a figure, so sure are his 
his words that some of the Dunlanders, they, they look up at the sky, the wild men look up at the sky in fear, thinking that something is just going to smash. Maybe the eagles are coming. That's generally what happens around this point in the story, right? Maybe the eagles are coming. That would be really bad. Maybe the eagles are coming and they're carrying, I don't know, big bombs or something. Something very bad is about to happen. They are convinced by nothing more than the power of Aragorn's words, but the orcs are not. Not just orcs, of course. Not the goblins of the Misty Mountains. Not the orcs of, of Barad-dûr. These are the Urukai of Isengard. These are the orcs that have been blended with men in some foul fashion in the, the pits of Isengard. These are more powerful. And they do not have that same understanding. They cannot see Aragorn's power here in this moment. The orcs laughed with loud voices. A hail of darts and arrows whistled over the wall as Aragorn leapt down. And then comes the blast, the roar, the blast of fire. The archway of the gate above which he had stood a moment before crumbled and crashed in smoke and dust. The barricade was scattered as if by a thunderbolt. Aragorn ran to the king's tower. This is the final assault of, of the Isengardian forces here, of, the, 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 of Saruman's forces against the gate. But even as the gate fell, even as this is happening, as the orcs about it yelled, preparing to charge, a murmur arose behind them like a wind in the distance, and it grew to a clamor of many voices carrying strange news in the dawn. The orcs upon the rock, hearing, this, hearing the rumor of dismay, wavered and looked back, and then sudden and terrible from the tower above, the sound of the great horn of Helm rang out. The tables are turned. Here we have a powerful intervention of goodness and of virtue and of agency. And here is my question. Is this eucatastrophic? Is this a moment of that famous Tolkienian catastrophe? Is this like, you know, the the um, is this like the dwarves climbing the the pine trees above the meeting of the goblins and the the wargs back in the pages of the Hobbit? Right? Is this a classic eucatastrophic moment? Well, no, no, because what separates what what distinguishes eucatastrophe is that the good emerges from the bad. That is to say that that the, the crisis itself, the catastrophe itself, turns to good ends. So there is an element here in which, in the broadest possible sense, this conflict against the orcs has now reached its, its lowest point, has now reached its nadir. Things are looking about as hopeless as they can look, and then they're going to swing upward and, and the good guys are going to win. You know, minor spoilers for the outcome of the Battle of Helm's Deep here. But what is good here does not emerge from what is bad. What is good here would have happened anyway, even if Aragorn and Eomer had, had held the wall themselves. You know, if our named heroes alone had held the wall against the orcs, then Gandalf would still have returned with Urkenbrand, would still have returned with the other forces at his command and crushed, the, well, and, and with the, the forest, of course, and crushed the orcs here. It would still have played out. So this is not, I think, technically speaking, a eucatastrophic moment. Particularly, it's not eucatastrophic because Aragorn prophesies it, because he has this foresight, because he stands on the gate and warns and no, the dawn is coming. Uh, no one knows what the new day shall bring. Get you gone and return to your evil. New dawn is coming, and you guys are all going to die. You get to leave now. Uh, nope, sorry, time's up. You decided to instead yell and jeer and fire arrows and blow up the gate. Well, okay, that's the choice that you made. That's the last thing. The White Rider sallies forth. Yes, it's a Gandalf intervention, says Angela Lurie. That is exactly, exactly what it is. Yes, good, good. Um, good, good, good. Okay, that's uh, that takes us all the way to... Um, 
Yes, uh, Eildwine, am I pronouncing that correctly in the Anglo-Saxon tradition? Eildwine, uh, possibly, but I'm, I'm going to stick with Eildwine, I think. I like that a lot. Uh, the orcs here doing the wind noise, where it was the Rohirrim as they rode off to war earlier, right? Wind always good in Rohan, right? This is always, this is always great. Um, even as the gate fell and the orcs about it yelled, preparing to charge, a murmur arose behind them like a wind in the distance. Yes, again, we're getting the wind. There are so many wind references throughout the, the Rohan chapters. There's so much, you know, the wind on the meadow from, from Aragorn's Song of Aerol the Young, all the way through, so many moments. And every time, you'll remember, the, the, the cold wind coming up around Theoden as he is restored to his health, the, the, the chill wind here bringing clarity and cleanliness, restoring him in that sense. There are so many examples of this. Okay, one more slide. We have got to get through this. I don't believe I'm actually going to finish this. This is great. So King Theoden rode from Helm's Gate and clove his path to the great dike. There the company halted. Light grew bright about them. Shafts of the sun flared above the eastern hills and glimmered on their spears. But they sat silent on their horses and they gazed deep. Uh, they gazed down into the deep coom. The land had changed. Where before the green dale had lain, its, its grassy slopes lapping the ever-mounting hills, there now a forest loomed. Great trees, bare and silent, stood rank on rank with tangled bough and hoary head. Their twisted roots were buried in the long green grass. Darkness was under them. Between the dike and the eaves of the nameless wood, only two open furlongs lay. There now cowered the proud hosts of Saruman, in terror of the king and in terror of the trees. They streamed down from Helm's Gate until all above the dike was empty of them, but below it were they were packed like swarming flies. Vainly they they crawled and clambered about the walls of the coombe, seeking to escape. Upon the east, too sheer and stony, was the valley side. Upon the left, from the west, their final doom approached. There, suddenly, upon a ridge appeared a rider, clad in white, shining like the rising sun. Over the low hills, the horns were sounding. Behind him, hastening down the long slopes, were a thousand men on foot. Their swords were in their hands. Amid them strode a man, tall and strong. His shield was red. As he came to the valley's brink, he set to his lips a great black horn and blew a ringing blast. Erkenbrand, the rider shouted, Erkenbrand, behold the white rider, cried Aragorn. Gandalf is come again. Mithrandir, Mithrandir, said Legolas. This is wizardry indeed. Come, I would look on this forest ere the spell changes. The hosts of Isengard roared, swaying this way and that, turning from fear to fear. Again the horn sounded from the tower. Down through the breach of the dike charged the king's company. Down from the hills leapt Erkenbrand, lord of Westfold. Down leapt Shadowfax, like a deer that runs sure-footed in the mountains. The white rider was upon them, and the terror of his coming filled the enemy with madness. The wild men fell on their faces before him. The orcs reeled and screamed and cast aside both sword and spear. Like a black smoke driven by a mounting wind, they fled. Wailing, they passed under the waiting shadow of the trees. And from that shadow, none ever came again. All the way through to another wind metaphor, right? Like a black smoke driven by a mounting wind, they fled. They dash into this mysterious forest, the coming of Burnham Wood. Burnham Wood has come. The orcs flee into its embrace and are never heard from again. This is epic. This is about as big as, as the Lord of the Rings has ever gotten so far and, and is among the largest moments that we're ever going to get. This is mythic. This is genuinely extraordinary. So King Theoden rides out, and again, we're getting the light, and we're getting the echo of the light. Huh. We're getting the uh, remembrance of the light that we saw before, where the sun was setting, right? And the, the spear tips were gleaming red. We're getting this, this baleful hopelessness as, as darkness sets in, as darkness comes over the men of Rohan. There the company halted. Light grew bright about them. Shafts of the sun flared above the eastern hills and glimmered on their spears. We're getting now the opposite effect. We're getting the light of dawn on their spears. They sat silent on their horses. They gazed down upon the deep comb. 
So now we get the account of the whole host of Isengard caught between the king, caught between the king and the forest. Now frightened, terrified, desperate at this point. And we get the call as Erkenbrand and his thousand men come down the hill. Erkenbrand, the rider, shouted, Erkenbrand, behold, the white rider, cried Aragorn. Gandalf has come again. Mithrandir, Mithrandir, said Legolas, this is wizardry indeed. Come, I would look on this forest ere the spell changes. So the, writer, uh, the writers of Rohan, Erkenbrand, the great leader we thought was dead, the lord of the mark that we thought was dead has returned to our salvation, Erkenbrand. And Aragorn turning to the mythic as he does, behold the white rider, Gandalf has come again. Look, you guys, are our restoration, our salvation is upon us. And Legolas, oh, there are trees, this is great. I want to check out the trees. Can I check out the trees? I want to check out the trees before they go away. Please, Gandalf, please, can I check out the trees? Legolas is already assured of victory. Legolas already knows how this is going to play out. He's charmed by this sudden forest, but he just wants to go and play. He wants to go and check it out rather than, you know, take care of the orcs that are still here. The hosts of Isengard roared, swaying this way and that, turning from fear to fear. They are beset on all sides now. Again, the horn sounded from the tower, right? The horn, the Helm's horn sounding from the tower. This, this mythic beat that we were introduced to when we were given Helm's Deep in the first place. The sounding of the horn and the echoing of the horn, it's powerful mythic stuff. We're in the midst of myth right now. Down through the breach of the dike charged the king's company. Down from the hills leapt Erkenbrand, lord of the Westfold. Down leapt Shadowfax. We're coming down and down and down, descending, literally descending from myth into the mortal realm, literally descending, falling upon our enemies. As we do, this is what we do in the best mythic traditions. And that is the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep. And I absolutely have to go because I am over time already. You guys, I'm sure that there are a few thematic things that we will wrap up at the beginning of our next session. Speaking of which, our next session, book three, chat, oh no, I didn't update this, I'm so sorry. Pay no attention to the slide on your screen. Let me cancel that. In fact, our actual next session, Book 3, Chapter 8, The Road to Isengard, 3 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, December the 7th. It's going to be another afternoon session next week, and then we'll have a couple of evening sessions again in the run-up to Christmas and the end of the year. But 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central next week. That is Thursday, December the 7th. 2017 for chapter eight, The Road to Isengard. Only two more sessions left in our discussion of book three of The Two Towers, and then we will turn our attention back once more to Frodo and Sam. I wonder how they've been getting along. But a little more Aragorn, a little more war, a little more Gandalf before we before we wrap up entirely. You guys, thank you all so much for being here this afternoon. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care. Bye.